If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy. In just a moment, I'll read the first 13 verses of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. But we're in a series on this book of 2 Timothy because it really meets us where we are at the current time. The author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, is in the ultimate quarantine as he is imprisoned in Rome, writing to a young pastor, Timothy, and the church at Ephesus as to what they should do during this time of persecution. Paul is in Rome during the persecution of Christians under the emperor Nero, and that's why he has been imprisoned because of that persecution. And at this point, when he's writing this letter, the apostle Paul knows that he will soon be executed, which invests this letter with great importance because in the quietness of quarantine, with the approaching his approaching execution, Paul has great clarity about what is most important and what the church should be and should do, what Christians should be and should do as we live life in this world. In fact, history tells us that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul will both be executed on the same day. Barnabas, the apostle, and the apostle James have both already been killed at this point in time. In chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul says that many Christians in Asia are turning away from the faith, perhaps because of this persecution and they're being ashamed that Paul is in prison, which raises the question that has to be on everyone's mind at this point when the letter is written. Will Christianity survive? Spoiler alert, it does survive as we are all gathered here today. Uh, But the greater question for us is, how did Christianity survive in that type of an environment? Paul outlines a plan here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that was important for Timothy and the church in their day, but it is just as important for us as well. You see, Christianity in America is in decline right now. Within the last two weeks, George Barna, uh, that great pollster, released a poll that he does um, every year uh, that shows that half of American adults, that's 51%, believe in a traditional biblical view of God as the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, and just creator of the universe who still rules the world today. And that 51% is down from 73% just three decades ago. In fact, this most recent poll shows that American adults are more confident about the existence of Satan than of God, as 56% believe Satan is an influential spiritual being, yet almost half, about 49%, are not fully confident that God truly exists. We see this reflected not just in our polling, but also in our politics. As the number of COVID-19 cases uh, being diagnosed and the um, actual number of deaths has plateaued and begun to decrease in the state of New York, the governor of New York, speaking at his Monday press conference, had this to say about that slow in the growth of COVID-19. The governor said at his press conference, the number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. 
Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. Then the very next day, as he was interviewed by CNN, the governor reiterated his point about God not playing a part in stopping the spread of the virus when he said this, Our behavior has stopped the spread of the virus. God did not stop the spread of the virus. Wow. He made those comments even as, and maybe because of, the fact that many Christians, such as Samaritan's Purse, had set up a field hospital in Central Park where they were treating folks with COVID-19 and praying that God would stop the spread of the virus, which indeed had taken place, and the governor wanted to clarify who we should attribute that to. So these questions, this plan that Paul has is important for us as well. When Christianity was threatened in the first century, what did they do to preserve the church? How did they survive? The persecution then was much more intense than what we face here in our country today. But the plan would be useful for us as well. They had a plan that worked, and we need a plan today that ensures the survival of the church, that ensures that we as individual Christians not just survive, but grow and thrive. What does that look like? How do we do that in a world that is hostile to the Christian faith? Paul presents just such a plan as he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here now, Paul's letter to Timothy in that church at Ephesus, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless... He will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this letter from the Apostle Paul. And I pray that you would use it now to teach your church, to teach individual Christians how we can not only survive, but thrive in a world that is hostile to Christianity. And Father, I pray that you would be willing to do this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
okay, so what is Paul's plan that he has that historically has allowed Christianity not just to survive but thrive even in a world that was very hostile to the claims of our faith? What is that plan? Well, I see, I want to show you three things in the text today. The first one I see Paul saying is this. His plan looks like this. Number one, entrust the gospel to reliable people who will teach others. Entrust the gospel to reliable people who will teach others. You see Paul say that in verse 2 of the text, right? Paul writes, And the things you have heard me say... In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's it? That's the plan? That's what you've got for us, Paul? Well, yes, that is the plan. And it shouldn't be so surprising to us. It was the plan of Jesus as well. If you will recall the resurrected Christ, right before he ascended into heaven, in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, tells his disciples, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, what I have done for you the last three years, now you go and do with others. Make disciples, teaching them the things that I have taught you. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes that he received this gospel, this good news from the Lord Jesus himself. So Jesus began this ministry. He entrusted these things to Paul Paul has now entrusted them to Timothy. We read about that last week in Timothy 1 and verse 13 where Paul says, What you heard from me, keep as the sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. So Jesus entrusted these things to Paul. Paul has entrusted them to Timothy. And now in chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul tells Timothy to entrust these things, what, the, what Timothy has heard Paul say, to entrust those things to others who can in turn teach others. That is the plan that historically has worked as we continue to entrust these truths to this very day. Your elders, your leaders in this church, recently read a book together entitled The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Uh, it's not a new book. It's been around for a long time. I think it's older than almost all of our elders. But in this book, Coleman says what his point of the book is. He said the point of the book is to study in the principles underlying the ministry of Christ the principles which determine his methods. And he begins the book by saying that men were the method that Jesus used. He writes, It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. 
That's the plan that Jesus had that's been carried on by Paul and then Timothy who entrusted it to others and continues to this day. Lest you think the language of entrusting these things to men means this is only for male followers of Christ, that is not the case. You can read in Titus chapter 2 where Paul gives similar instructions. And in Titus 2, he says that in the church there at Crete that the older women should entrust these things to the younger women and train them in the things that they themselves have learned. That's the plan. That's how Christianity has not just survived but thrived for 2,000 years. It's hard to believe but that is the way it has been it has worked it's been entrusted from one generation to the next you may wonder will that really work is that something that is really effective but history tells us that it does i mean think about it here is P- paul in prison He's about to be executed by the emperor Nero. It looks like the Roman emperor has all the power. Peter and Paul are killed the same day, but 2,000 years later. When's the last time you read anything that was written by the emperor Nero? But here we are reading a letter where Paul has entrusted what Jesus entrusted to him as he entrusted to Timothy and instructs him to entrust it to others. Yes, this works. Which begs the question, how are we with this entrusting ministry at our church? What about you individually? Who are you entrusting these things to? Who are you pouring into? Or who are you learning from? Who are you having entrust to you the things that Jesus teaches in his word? Is this a priority for us as a church? Is it something that we're focused on? Is it a priority for you individually? Something that you keep in focus, that you want to be sure that you're always learning more from someone who's further along and that you are in turn entrusting these things to others who may not be as far along as you are. That's the first thing we're to do, to entrust the gospel to reliable people who will teach others. There's a second thing Paul says here. He instructs Timothy to endure hardship, or as we said last week, to suffer for the gospel. You see it there in verse 3 of our text. He tells Timothy, endure hardship with us. It's the same word, hardship, it's the same word for suffering he used in chapter 1 and verse 8 where he said to Timothy, but join me in suffering for the gospel. So it's this call to endure hardship, to suffer for the gospel. Paul is saying this, he's saying, look Timothy, this entrusting thing works, but it is not easy. You must endure in it. You must suffer through it and labor in it. And then Paul gives us five illustrations, first for Timothy and preserve for us, to learn what it looks like to endure hardship, to suffer for the gospel, to continue to labor as we entrust the truths of the faith to another generation. I want to look at those five illustrations with you quickly. The first one is that of the focused soldier. You see it there in verses 3 and 4 where Paul writes, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, the Apostle Paul is in a Roman prison when he writes this, so he has had the opportunity to observe Roman soldiers. And evidently, he has noticed how they concentrate on their task. They stay focused on the orders that have been given them by their commanding officer. And so Paul now tells Timothy, in this matter of entrusting the gospel to reliable people who will teach others, he's saying, stay focused on that. Don't get distracted by other things. Do what your commanding officer wants you to do and not what other people want you to do. Now, it's important that you don't hear what Paul is not saying. Some folks read this about not getting entangled in civilian affairs and, and, thinks what, and they think the command of Paul is that we just focus on church stuff and we don't get bogged down with things outside the church. And that's not at all what Paul is saying in other places, including the letter of 1 Timothy that he wrote uh, to Timothy earlier. Paul commends work at home. He commends work at our jobs. He commends work outside the church. In fact, I think what Paul is even saying here is, don't even let church things distract you from the order that Jesus has given us to make disciples. Don't even let other spiritual things distract us from carrying out that order that the Lord Jesus has given to us. Now, I think it's important to point out that Jesus did not neglect a ministry broader than the 12 disciples. He did preach to the masses. He did teach the masses. He fed the masses. He uh, healed the masses. He answered their questions. He blessed their children. But that broader ministry, Jesus never let that distract him from pouring into these 12 men. In fact, he used those as teaching opportunities for them as he modeled what to do and then give them opportunities to do the ministry that he had been involved in. How about us? I fear we often let good things distract us from the main thing that Jesus gave us to do, which is to make disciples. We must endure in entrusting the gospel to reliable people who will in turn teach others. I'm not saying we should neglect other ministries of the church, but what I am saying is that this particular ministry is vital. We might say in our day and age that it is one of those essential things that nothing else should stop. We must endure in entrusting the gospel and stay focused and not get distracted from entrusting the gospel to reliable people who will teach others. There is a second illustration here, that of the rule-abiding athlete. You see it there in verse 5. Paul writes, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. So first, Paul gives the illustration of a Roman soldier focused on the orders from the commanding officer. And now he gives this picture 
of a Greek athlete. I say Greek because the Olympics originated in Greece, had been going on centuries before Paul wrote this letter. Paul had an active ministry in Greece. He was in Athens. He was in Corinth, which was between Athens and Olympia, where the Olympics would take place. He served in Thessalonica and in Philippi, which are all in Greece, and Paul would have been familiar with athletes. It's a, an illustration he uses a lot as he refers to uh, crowns or as he refers to running a race. It's a, an illustration that he likes to use a lot. And each event uh, in the Greek Olympics had a prize, a crown, an evergreen wreath that would be placed on the head of the victor. And each event had rules. There were even rules for training. Before you even competed, you had to certify that you had been training a certain amount of time because they wanted to keep the quality of the Olympics at a certain level. And then when you competed, you have to follow the rules or else you would be disqualified. And Paul seems to be saying, just like in athletics, if you, if, if you don't follow the rules, then you don't win the wreath. If there's no rules, no wreath, no rules, no reward, if you don't follow and do the things that are set out you're supposed to do, then you won't be victorious in your goal. Now, there are a couple of misconceptions here. Let me deal with those. First, please realize we don't follow the rules in order to be saved, right? Here, when Paul is writing, the reward is not salvation. We have not followed the rules Jesus has followed the rules perfectly in our place. That's why we depend on his finished work for our salvation. And while it is true that we do strive to follow God's rules, that his law is the guide for how we should live, that's the second misconception. People look at this and they say, okay, it's not for salvation, but it's just telling us we have to follow God's word as we run our race. We should live as God tells us to live. And that is true, and that is taught other places in the scripture but that's not what Paul is saying here in this place. Remember what the crown is. He's saying keep the rules to win the reward, to win the crown. And when he refers to victory here, it is making disciples of Jesus. That's what the goal is, entrusting these truths to others who will in turn entrust them to others. Paul frequently uses this imagery that that would be his crown. He writes it to the church at Corinth. He writes it to Philippians. He said, what is my crown? What is my joy? Is it not you? It's people who are following Jesus and continue to follow him in the faith. So the reward, the goal, the crown here is disciples of Jesus. And we are supposed to follow certain rules in order to make disciples. What are the rules we follow? Well, Paul has mentioned them. He told Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 13, Keep as the pattern of sound teaching what you heard from me. And then he says it again in, in chapter 2 and verse 2, What you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people. He's saying, Timothy, there's a way that this is done. What Jesus did with his disciples, what I have done with you, Turn around and do those things with others. That's the pattern for how this is supposed to work. There's a way to do it. You select a few people. You spend time with them. You teach them the truths of the faith. You model what it looks like to live these things out. You let them try it. You help them do it. And then you teach them to entrust these things to others. If you've studied 
education before, maybe you're an education major or have a degree in education, that's a pretty good synopsis of Bloom's taxonomy, which we look to to describe the best way to teach someone. And it's exactly what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. So the question for us is, do we do it that way? There are a lot of ways to teach folks, but we do, do we do it the way Jesus showed us to do it? Paul is saying here, we, we need to keep that pattern. We need to follow that rule if we want to see the result that Jesus called us to have. So we're supposed to say, focus on the tax task, not get distracted. We're supposed to do it the way and the pattern that was set out for us. And we're to work hard at it. We see the illustration, the third illustration in verse 6 is the hardworking farmer. Paul writes, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Paul's saying we have to work hard to see fruit, to see followers of Jesus. Farmers work for a whole season. They don't just throw out seed and, and have a harvest the next day. It takes time. And they have to be very intentional. They don't just throw out the seed and then wait a whole season and come back for the harvest. It's tedious work every day, continuing to be very intentional to the task so that there is a harvest. And Paul says we're supposed to work that way to develop followers of Jesus as well. He seems to be saying that souls are not one to Jesus, that people don't grow as followers of Jesus by slick presentations or some clever application of a formula, but that it happens by hard work, persistent love and grace that we extend to people, daily pouring out our lives into others, that by sweat and tears and the pain of prayer and intentional conversations in life-on-life -life ministry, we see people grow in their faith. Paul often talks like this. Let me just give you an example. He writes to the Colossian church. In Colossians chapter 1, listen to what Paul says. Paul says, We proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect, or your translation may say mature in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. He writes, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding and in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you hear how Paul said he went about his task? He used verbs like, I labor. I struggle, I exert energy that I get from God, I work. Those are the ways that Paul says this is to be done. Do we work at the task in that way? I fear many times we want mature followers of Jesus, we want to see people come to Christ, but we're not willing to work at it. It's not something we're intentional about, it's not something that we stay focused on, that we stay committed to that we work for an entire season, that we stay at work as the hard-working farmer in order to see a harvest. There's a fourth illustration Paul gives here. 
He says, remember Jesus Christ, there in verse 8, the example of Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Now, why would he tell him to remember Jesus? Was Timothy in danger of forgetting Jesus? No, he would remember him, just like we're not in danger of forgetting him. But sometimes we forget the struggle of Jesus, or we think that we're glad Jesus suffered and struggled so that we don't have to. And that's not what the scripture teaches. It's not what Jesus promised. If in order to convey to Timothy this is going to be difficult, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, so he's now reigning in heaven, but oh yeah, he went through hell and death to get there. His exaltation came after humiliation. The path to life came through death. His glory came after his suffering. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, if you think this is going to be easy, remember Jesus. Remember his struggle. Remember what he had to go through to accomplish his task. And it's easy for us to think, well, Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He's fully divine. And then Paul reminds us, Jesus raised from the dead, descended from David, reminding us of his humanity. Yes, that he was fully God, but also fully human. That he did these things subject to all the fears and the temptations and the suffering and the struggle that is common to human beings. And Jesus said to his followers, if they persecuted me, They will persecute you. No servant is greater than the master, he says in John chapter chapter 15. So Timothy is saying, Paul is saying, Timothy, if you think this is going to be easy, remember the example of Jesus who promised us that as we share the gospel, there will be suffering in the gospel. And then fifthly, Paul uses himself as an example. You see that? He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, verse 9, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We see it again, don't we? That link between sharing the gospel and suffering for the gospel that Paul has been sharing the gospel, and that's why he is imprisoned in Rome. But Paul encourages us. He says it's all worth it. He's about to give his life for it. He says it's worth it. Why? Because God has people that are his. And Paul wants to be used of God to bring God's children into God's family. It should drive us to know God has people out there who are his. How can they believe in Jesus if they never hear about him? How can they hear unless we are willing to talk about the Savior? I fear we're not talking about the Lord, that we're not entrusting the truths of the faith to another generation. And then we sit and are shocked by polls that say half of American adults don't believe in God. And we hear pronouncements like we heard connected with the COVID-19 crisis. Well, how do we carry out this task? 
What's the empowerment for our task? I see that we're to entrust the gospel to reliable people, that we're supposed to endure in that. How do we endure? What's the empowerment for this? And Paul gives empowerment for the task to Timothy at the beginning of this section, at the end, all throughout. Let me show you. In verse 1 of the chapter, Paul tells Timothy, You then, my son, be strong. And he doesn't just stop there. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He ends this section with the trustworthy saying that we'll look at in just a minute that also assures us of God's faithfulness in this process. But he's been saying this all along. In chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul has said, But join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's his power that empowers us. He has said it in chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says, that's why I am suffering because I've been sharing the gospel. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know in whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what has been entrusted until that day. His confidence is that Jesus will be able to guard what's been entrusted, that he has power, that he is able. He tells Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He's saying, Timothy, my son, you don't do this in your own strength. You do it by the power of God. You do it by the power of the Spirit who lives in us. He's able to guard the deposit. Here in Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We find the strength to entrust. We find the strength to endure not in ourselves but in Him. It means we live not out of our own resources but in dependence on Him. That we look to God to give us the strength because we don't consider ourselves adequate or, comp or competent in ourselves. That begs the question, how do I know if I'm depending on God or if I'm depending on me? It's hard. That Colossians 1 text, Paul said, I labor with all his energy that is at work powerfully in me. Here in verse 7, he's saying, reflect, think about, meditate on these things, and the Lord will give you insight. It's both and, that we work hard, but we do it in the strength of the Lord. How do I know if I'm depending on God or on me? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. How often do you pray? You see, we often launch out to do a task without praying because we think we can do something on our own. We think we can meet a goal. We think we can entrust. We think we can endure. But prayer is an acknowledgement that I can't, but that God can. Second question. How often do you take risks to speak the gospel? You know, when I think it's all up to me and I've got to convince people or I've got to have all the answers or I've got to do it exactly the right way, I often shrink away from the task. But when I realize my job is just to tell about the Lord, it's just to testify about Him, it's God's job to convince people. It's God's job to change hearts. It's God's job to change minds. It takes the pressure off of us and we're more willing to take risks to speak the gospel. Let me end where Paul does with this trustworthy saying. It gives such encouragement and empowerment for our task. Look at what Paul says. He says, if we died with him, here's Paul facing death in a Roman prison about to be executed. If we died with him, 
we will also live with him. Paul's saying if the worst thing you can imagine happens, it's really for our good. It's better by far to live with him, to be with Christ, and even death won't separate us from him. Verse 12, Paul says, if we endure... We will also reign with him. If we endure in this entrusting the gospel, if we endure in this, that a day will come when we will reign with him, when we will see that day that not 49% of American adults, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has reigned and is reigning over all things, even stopping the spread of a virus. If we endure, we see that day. Paul says if we deny him or disown him, he will deny us. It's what Jesus said, right? If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. This idea of denying or disowning as people are turning away from the faith, people who never really embraced Christianity to begin with. And then Paul says something amazing. If we are faithless, this must be something less than disowning or denying God. If we're faithless, he doesn't mean if we don't believe. He says if we're faithless, he will remain faithful. If we're not as faithful as we should be, God will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. Oh, what encouragement. That even if we're not as faithful as we should be to this task, even if we don't entrust, even if we're not as focused as we should, if we're distracted sometimes, if we don't make it the priority we should, but then we keep making the effort to do so, that if we stay focused, if we stay hard at work, if when we fail, we try again, we keep going, even in our starts and our stops and our fickleness, our hope is not that we are faithful, but that God is faithful. You may be thinking to yourself, hasn't Redeemer Church tried something like this before? Yes, on numerous occasions. And if we fall short, we will try again and again and again because our hope is not in our faithfulness. It's in the faithfulness of God. Maybe you as an individual, you've tried Christianity before. You've tried to make this work. You've tried to follow Jesus and you've fallen short. There's, there's shame that we don't want to go back and try again. But the scripture assures us, no, no, even if we are faithless, even when we're not as faithful as we should be, God is faithful and he will not disown himself. Let's pray and ask him to do that in this place. Heavenly Father, our hope is not in our faithfulness. Our hope is in your faithfulness. I pray that your faithfulness, that your power, that your goodness, that your grace and your mercy would enable us to continue to exert effort, to continue to, when we fall short, to get back up and to try again, that we would continue to do the hard work, that we would continue to struggle, to labor with all of your energy at work in us. Please come and do so for your glory and our good. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.